Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the Feast of Pentecost, May 31st, 2020. When Luke mentions the Feast of Pentecost in our first reading, we can easily gloss over the implication that Pentecost is a Jewish feast. One of four springtime feasts on the Jewish liturgical calendar, Pentecost celebrated both the ingathering of the harvest as well as the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Comparing and contrasting the first Pentecost with the new Pentecost, we discover that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit does indeed bring about a harvest, one that is new and rich in meaning. Here we are back again, and today we are talking about the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, Before we dive into it, I have a a couple of announcements about some uh, fun things I'm going to have coming out if you're interested. Um, So I'm going to be live streaming a Bible study in the next few weeks. Um, We've been spending the Easter season reading through the book of Acts, which kind of wets our palate for the history of the early church. And it's a book that um, uh, is not always uh, given a lot of attention. I mean, it's it's given adequate attention in, in the lectionary. I don't want to say that the church itself isn't giving adequate attention to it, but um, we don't always focus on it as a, as a, a, a specific Bible study. So I want to take the time in a couple of weeks to live stream a Bible study with you. Um, this Bible study, we're going to live stream, hopefully, so long as you know everything goes correctly, we're going to be live streaming it on um, Facebook and YouTube. And so if you're interested in being a part of that, uh, well, let me throw out the dates here. First of all, we're going to do it Wednesday evenings. Uh, so I have it scheduled for uh, June 10th, 17th, and 24th, and then July 1st. So this is going to be a four-session uh, Bible study, a, a quick overview of the book of Acts, June 10th, 17th, 24th, and July 1st. So those are four consecutive Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Central. And so the best way to keep up to date on that is uh, to head to the podcast website, www.sundaydive.com. Up in the right-hand corner, at least if you're looking at it from a desktop, you're going to see a couple of uh, you know social icons. One will take you to my Facebook page. The other will take you to my YouTube page. Um, if you go to my Facebook page, make sure you like the Facebook page and uh, and enable notifications. Um, I believe it defaults to enable notifications, but uh, check into that. And if you uh, would rather watch on YouTube, you can go over to my YouTube uh, page channel and uh, subscribe. And then um, there's another, like Facebook, there's an option to uh, get notifications. So you'll you'll want to put it in your calendar, but if you sign up for notifications, it should also um, you know push to your phone when I go live. So that's June 10th, 17th, 24th, and July 1st, four consecutive Wednesdays on the Book of Acts, 7 p.m. Central. Before I go live with that on June 10th, though, I uh, want to do basically a, a test run of my equipment. Um, so if you're interested, and I would actually consider this kind of like a favor that you could do for me, um, here this upcoming Friday, um, May 29th at 7 p.m. I'm going to do a quick like test of the system. 
Um, so I'm going to go live streaming on both Facebook and YouTube, my Facebook page and my YouTube channel this upcoming Friday, May 29th at 7 p.m. And so that we have something to talk about, I'm going to kind of do it just as like an ask me anything or uh, a Q&A. Um, and if you're interested, it would be really helpful if you sent me any questions or quandaries you might have beforehand. And so also if you go to the uh, podcast website, www.sundaydive.com. Up at the top or in the menu, depending on, you know, what, uh, if you're on mobile or desktop, there's going to be a link to a form where you can like submit questions or quandaries or things like that. I'll have material prepped, some material prepped. I've already got some questions. Um, but uh, you can leave me your questions there and it'll give us something to, to talk about, to visit about and, uh, and allow me to test out my equipment. So that's this upcoming Friday, May 29th. I'd love for you to join me. I'll be on my Facebook page streaming live and my YouTube channel streaming, streaming live um, at 7 p.m. Central. Again, that'd be like a huge favor for me if you'd be willing to tune in. I'll give you a little teaser of, of what I'm for sure going to talk about um, before I start taking questions. Uh, when we touched on the Ascension last week, I stopped the recording and began, you know, the, the minor post-production. That sounds really fancy. I It's like copy and paste. Don't listen to me. I I started I started like wrapping it up, getting it ready to post, and I realized, oh my goodness, I didn't tell them about the miracle of the scarlet cord, because we were talking about Jesus and how his ascension in his ascension he fulfills the day of atonement, and there is the scarlet cord that uh, I, I can't give it away too much, but it's a it was an integral part of the uh, Yom Kippur Day of Atonement ceremony. And there was a miracle associated with it. And uh, this miracle stopped at a certain point. And it has a definite relationship with the time period of Jesus's ascension. So I was so bummed that I didn't think to include that in um, the podcast, but happy fault. I'll give you a little bit of that background um, when we do like the Ask Me Anything Q&A test my live streaming software this coming Friday, May 29th. Okay, I think that's all the announcements I have. I know that's a, a ton of stuff for you, um, but I'm looking forward to meeting you elsewhere besides just on the podcast. Let's dive into it though, so I don't uh, eat up uh, too much of our time together. Um, we are talking today about the readings for the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of my favorite topics to discuss. And so um, because the Feast of Pentecost and the details of the Feast of Pentecost are primarily contained in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to break from uh, tradition, if you will, again, just like we did last week, last episode, and instead of reading the gospel together, what we're actually going to read together and explore in our episode today is the first reading. So I'm reading for you the first reading for the Feast of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, 
And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. So that was the reading from uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, our first reading for the Feast of Pentecost. And uh, a lot of what I like to do during our time together is, um, if it's fitting for our readings, try to give you as much um, Jewish and first century background to our readings that we can, because it's extremely helpful to contextualize them in this way. And Luke uh, hints at this background for us in this very first verse of Acts chapter two, by setting the scene and saying, when the day of Pentecost had come. Now we as Christians reading through this reading can gloss over this because we can kind of read it maybe without even realizing it as a bit of an anachronism, okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, this would be an anachronism for Luke to say when the day of Pentecost had come would be an, an anachronism if Pentecost was only a Christian feast. So it would be like Luke taking a term that had not yet developed completely and dropping it into uh, a previous situation, if you will. But what Luke has here is not an anachronism. And the reason for that is that uh, little known by Christians, Pentecost is originally a Jewish feast. And so Pentecost is uh, one of the only feasts that both Jews and Christians celebrate. And when you have the backdrop of the original Pentecost and the original spirit of the Jewish Pentecost, and you compare that with this Christian Pentecost, this new Pentecost, we see that the two are deeply connected and that the one kind of informs the other and gives it its its beautiful, lush, uh, deep, resonance and meaning. So let's talk about the original Feast of Pentecost. So feast days in uh, Judaism tend to have a twofold dimension. Uh, They tend to have an agricultural dimension, and then they tend to have an historical dimension. And Pentecost is no exception to that. So uh, the historical dimension 
underpinning the Jewish feast of Pentecost is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So what Pentecost celebrates for the Jewish people is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Now, Pentecost is intimately related to Passover, both for Christians and for Jews. And though Pentecost, it's believed, was originally primarily an agricultural feast, it became associated with Passover because of its proximity to Passover. So to to get you to understand this, um, let me just outline for you very briefly uh, part of the Jewish liturgical calendar. So the Jewish liturgical calendar has seven feasts, as outlined in Leviticus 23. Four of these feasts are spring feasts, and three of them are fall feasts. The first feast in the spring, which kicks off the entire liturgical year, is the Feast of Passover, and it's arguably the Jewish feast that we're most familiar with because Jesus' Paschal mystery— uh, is uh, when in the Paschal mystery, that word is related to Passover. It surrounds the event of the Jewish Passover. And so uh, Passover happening on the 14th day of the first Jewish month of Nisan uh, kicks off the liturgical calendar. Then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of first fruits, and then the Feast of Pentecost, or the Hebrew name for it, is translated the Feast of Weeks. Now, calling it the Feast of Pentecost clues us into kind of a a timing here, timing element. So Pentecost is a Greek word which uh, literally means 50. And the Feast of Pentecost occurred 50 days after Passover. Now, if you think back to the original Passover— You know that this event was significant because it was the beginning of God's delivering his people from oppression in Egypt. But in many ways, the uh, deliverance was not brought to a completion until the Feast of Pentecost, all right, until the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, God really formed the Israelites, the Israelite people, into their own sovereign nation. And this is deeply important because when God uh, saves us, he doesn't just save us from something. He always saves us for something. And so it wasn't enough for God to merely save the Israelites from the Egyptians. He wanted to save them for something. He wanted to save them to be uh, a nation set apart, a nation for him, okay? And he also wanted to fulfill the covenants that he had made to Abraham, uh, you know, hundreds of years before, when he said, your descendants will be a great nation, okay? And when when his descendants are uh, in oppression and slavery in Egypt, they are most certainly not a great nation. So God, beginning with the Passover, that meal that saved them from death and began their deliverance, God brings the Israelites out of oppression in Egypt. And then he calls them to an even deeper reality. So again, he's not just saving them from something, but he's saving them for something. So he calls them to this deeper reality by bringing them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God speaks to his people through Moses. And there he makes a covenant with his people. So at Exodus 19, up on the mountain, God gives 
uh, Israel, his law, and this is often summed up in the 10 commandments, which you can find at Exodus 19. He also gives the Israelites some civil laws and some liturgical laws. Now, if you follow the narrative of Exodus, you know that God gives the law at Exodus 19. Um, A a few uh, chapters later, the covenant that he is offering to the Israelites is going to be ratified when Moses takes some of the blood of the offerings and spreads it upon the people. Okay, and he says, behold the blood of the covenant. Interestingly enough, Jesus's language at the Last Supper sounds really similar to that. And then uh, after the covenant is ratified, God calls Moses to come up onto the mountain with him. We talked about this a little bit uh, last episode in regards to the ascension. He calls Moses to come up on the mountain with him and to... uh, continue receiving direction. And so it tells us that Moses goes up on Mount Sinai once more, and he stays there uh, for 40 days and 40 nights. And during those 40 days and 40 nights, as we discussed uh, last episode, God gives Moses instructions for the tabernacle, the uh, portable temple where his dwelling is going to be among the Israelites. While he is on Mount Sinai, God kind of has to interrupt the whole uh, the whole interchange to tell Moses that while he has been away, uh, his people have gotten restless and they have constructed for themselves a golden calf and they have begun worshiping it. And uh, God sends Moses down Mount Sinai to bring this all to a stop. And uh, you can you can read more about this at um, at Exodus 32. It's a, it's a beautiful account. Uh, it's a sad account, but it's a beautiful account, account no less. Moses comes down from the mountain. It says that he stood in the gate of the camp. This is at verse 26 of Exodus 32, and he says, "Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side?" And it's the Levites. Uh, the men of the tribe of Levi who come forward and say, we are on the Lord's side. In other words, we're going to continue to be faithful to the Lord. And so Moses, addressing the Levites who have volunteered themselves as the faithful, gives the instruction to them to go about the camp and to slay anyone who is practicing idolatry, to slay anyone who is practicing idolatry. And that's exactly what the Levites do. And uh, at verse 28, we are told that um, the amount of men that they slay that day was about 3,000, was about 3,000. And uh, we're going to see that number crop up again here um, in uh, the book of Acts chapter 2. It's not actually in our first reading, but uh, we'll bring it in nonetheless because it is. It connects beautifully the first Pentecost with the second Pentecost. So the people are disobedient. They've just been extended the covenant. They've just been given God's law. And in a matter of days, mere days, the people turn to idolatry once more. Now, this is in contrast to what occurs on the day of Pentecost. 
So on the day of Pentecost, we're told that there is a theophany, uh, an appearance of God, much like there was at Exodus 19. And so we read that there was a, a rush of violent wind that filled the entire house where they were and that tongues of fire came and appeared and rested on them. At, uh, at Exodus 19, we hear about thunder, lightning, a thick cloud, a loud trumpet blast. And so we have the, the theophany occurring again. And where at Exodus 19, God gives the law summed up in the Ten Commandments, here at Acts 2, God also gives a law. But this new law is different from the law that we might expect And this new law is in a way efficacious. It's in a way efficient, like it actually causes something. And why is that? Well, because this new law is completely unique. I know we've touched on this at various times in the podcast because it's a deeply important reality for us to understand. This new law is not the Beatitudes. It's not the golden rule. It's it's nothing like that. This new law is the law of the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so where the original law of the Ten Commandments given at Exodus 19 could not bring about obedience, the new law given at the new Pentecost at Acts chapter 2 does indeed bring about obedience. How are we able to be transformed into other Christs? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by the indwelling of Christ's Spirit himself within us, that animates us and can cause us to be of one will with the Father, just as Jesus was at one will with the Father. And so, where the first law could not bring about obedience and resulted in uh, in sin in the golden calf incident, where 3,000 men were slain, If we read, if we continue reading in Acts chapter 2, we can jump to verse 37, and we're told at the end of Peter's speech, because what happens if we keep reading past verse 11, where our first reading ends, Peter's going to get up and he's going to start preaching, and he's going to open all of salvation history to the Jews who are listening to to him to try to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And it says at verse 37 that those who heard them were cut to the heart, were cut to the heart. A very fascinating image, which implies so many things. But for one, it implies the sword. And so just as the Levites went throughout the camp cutting people, slaying them, so here at Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the hearers of the preaching of St. Peter are also cut. They're cut to the heart. And if we jump ahead to verse 41, we're told that those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
So we're 3,000 committed idolatry after the giving of the first law and the extending of that first covenant. Here in the new age, the Messianic age at Acts chapter two, with the giving of this new law and the extending of this new covenant, 3,000 souls are brought to obedience and received through baptism the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so it's this complete reversal of the magnificent failure in a way of the first law. And I know I keep talking about how the first law was ineffective, it was inefficient, it couldn't cause obedience, any of these things. And I don't wanna come off like God like didn't have his best day when it came to uh, creating or guiding humanity that day in Exodus 19. St. Paul wrestles with this idea of why did God even bother giving us a law when we didn't have the ability to keep the law? And the conclusion he comes to is that the law showed us our sinfulness. And in fact, it still continues to. That's why the, the Ten Commandments are still um, a deeply important part of our moral life, even though they're they're from the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, because they show us our sinfulness and they show us how much we need God and how much we need grace in order to conform to the desires of providence, in order to conform to the desires of God for us. And he, he, even simply, merely to to achieve that for which God created us for. Our sinfulness makes that near impossible. And so though the first law that God gave um, was not accompanied by the grace of the Holy Spirit and and did not allow for the Israelites to, to fling off their idolatry, the new law indeed does. The new law indeed does. And it it doesn't do it by some sort of magic. If you're a Christian and you've been um, trying to achieve the moral life, you've been been trying to uh, live in accordance with the the moral law and God's desires, you know that just because you're baptized, all of a sudden um, life isn't peachy keen and easy, right? And so there's still an element, a very big element of uh, of our needing to be docile to God and, and even to do our part. But nonetheless, the Ten Commandments did not bring about the transformation of soul and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that the new law brings in the new Messianic age that we read about at Acts chapter 2. So many uh, beautiful, beautiful things going on here. That's kind of the historical perspective, right? So I said uh, Jewish feasts uh, tend to have like a historical dimension and an agricultural dimension. So the historical dimension being a celebration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Let's talk about the agricultural dimension. And this is no less uh, no less fascinating. So, um, there's the seven feasts, right? Uh, and there's four of them in the spring. There's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. Now, I said that many scholars believe that Pentecost was originally celebrated as an agricultural feast because the timing of the feast occurs 
um, around uh, the, the, the gathering of the harvest, the gathering of the harvest. And so it appears to be a celebration no, I, didn't, I shouldn't even say it. It appears to be. It is a celebration of the bringing in of the harvest. Let, let me contextualize this once more in the broader Jewish liturgical calendar here, though, because when I do that, you'll really see just like by contextualizing um, the new Pentecost with the old first Pentecost, by contextualizing the feast of um Pentecost and its agricultural dimension in the broader uh, sort of schema of the four spring festivals on the Jewish liturgical calendar, Pentecost is going to take on an even deeper meaning. All right. So we have Passover is the beginning of the Jewish liturgical year on the 14th day of the first month, which was Nisan. Okay. Spelled just like the car. Uh <laughs> If you've wondered if there's ever Japanese in the Bible, I guess there is. So Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Then we had the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. And these feasts, uh, these, these feasts occurred consecutively of one another. So the Feast of Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. The Feast, the feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated on the 15th of Nisan. And actually, to be more accurate, we'd have to say it was celebrated from the 15th to the 22nd because it actually lasted eight days. But nonetheless, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated on the 15th of Nisan. And then First Fruits was celebrated the next day on the 16th of Nisan. And there's 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 some confusion between the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost. Sometimes those feasts get conflated in part because another name for Pentecost is sometimes First Fruits. Now there's already another feast called First Fruits, but there's a sort of relationship here. So it, the, the the harvest that was largely being celebrated around Pentecost was the grain harvest. And the grain harvest uh, spanned several weeks. And so at the Feast of First Fruits, which is the third of those three consecutive feasts occurring on the 16th of Nisan, the Jewish people would celebrate the beginning of the bringing in of the grain harvest, literally the first fruits. Sometimes it's called uh, the first fruits of the first fruits so as not to be too confused with Pentecost, also known as first fruits, because that clears it up completely, right? And so on the 16th of Nisan, you had the celebration of the beginning of the grain harvest, first fruits. Then you go 50 days later, which is what Pentecost literally means in Greek, right? 50. 50 days later, and you get the feast of the uh, in-gathering, the feast of Pentecost celebrating um, the completion, in a way, of the grain harvest. Now, this gets fascinating when it's compared to uh, the events surrounding Jesus's death and resurrection and the Pentecost event. And so Brant Petrie, for example, who does a ton of work on the Jewish roots of Christianity, who I get a, a ton of my material from, he makes the comparison between Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, and essentially the Paschal mystery. 
And so what Dr. Petrie sees is that Passover occurs on Holy Thursday, right? Unleavened bread on Good Friday and first fruits on Holy Saturday. And, and when you keep in mind that the, the Jewish day uh, begins the evening before, right? Saturday evening is really Sunday. And so Dr. Petrie sees that there's this correlation between Jesus's Last Supper, death on the cross, and his resurrection, and the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, such that Jesus is rising from the dead on Easter Sunday correlates with the feast of first fruits. And this is fascinating when we look at some of the other uh, New Testament writings. So, for example, St. Paul at 1 Corinthians. 15 verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But then James chapter 1 verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits of his creatures. And so this notion of first fruits is not only applied to Jesus by St. Paul at 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but it's also applied to us by James at chapter one, verse 18. And so here, then it becomes fascinating that the Feast of Firstfruits and the Feast of Pentecost are so related and even at times conflated. Because if the resurrection is literally the first fruits of Christ's redemption, where he is victorious over death by restoring life to himself by his own divine power, then the beginning of the harvest comes to a kind of completion. And it's interesting because the Feast of Pentecost is sometimes also called the Feast of the Conclusion. The Feast of Pentecost in which the Holy Spirit is poured out and Christians experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So so what happened at, at Easter at Jesus' resurrection is his spirit who left his body, which is the definition of death, the, the soul, the spirit leaving the body. His spirit who left his body returned to his body so that his body came back to life. But not only that, it came back to life, a new life, right? Jesus didn't just have normal human life anymore. He didn't have just a normal human body. He had a glorified body, right? After the resurrection, we see that Jesus can walk through locked doors. And so the, the, the restoration, the indwelling of Jesus's spirit once more in his body, not only brings his, li- his body back to life, but it gives his body a new life. When God gives us that very same spirit of Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit, to, to 
be poured out upon us and to dwell within us, we experience a sort of resuscitation from our our death that causes us to be like the Israelites who are at the base of Mount Sinai. And even though we've just been given this great gift of uh, a new covenant and a new law, we cannot stop sinning. But with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we experience this, this, this life. And not only that, but this new life, right? Just as the life that Jesus had in his resurrection was was different. The human life that he had in his resurrection was different after his resurrection. It was this, this glorified body, right? So the life that we experience with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not just a return to like Eden. It's not just a return to what Adam and Eve had in the garden. It's something greater. It's something greater. It's this this indwelling with the Holy Spirit. Um, what what some of the church fathers like to call this this sober intoxication of the Spirit, right? Um, uh, Saint Ambrose, I think, uh, coined that phrase. But Saint Augustine talks about it. Saint Cyril of Jerusalem. Uh, they they come to this 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 sort of phrase because uh, at Acts chapter two, the apostles are accused of, uh, of being drunk. So people who are witnessing, uh, their joy and their fervor, uh, need a human, uh, reason to assign to it. And so they say that these men are, are, are drunk on wine and the apostles are like, no, we're not drunk on wine. And the church fathers kind of uh, complete the answer for them and say they're they're drunk on the Holy Spirit. They have this intoxication of the Holy Spirit. What's fascinating is that there's a couple of Old Testament texts that seem to allude to this idea and even New Testament texts, to be honest. So at Joel chapter four, verse 18, we read that um, prophesying of the Messianic age on that day, the mountains will drip with new wine. The mountains will drip with new wine. Why new wine, right? New wine. So wine as it ages, it tends to get drier, right? So new wine is going to be like a sweeter wine. I tend to like dry wine. So when I was contemplating this idea, I was like, you know, I'm not so sure about this. I'd much rather have like a Cabernet. But then I remembered that on special occasions, there's a, there's a wine that I like to get from Trader Joe's called Lambrusco. It's really good. You should try it. Um, and it's a sparkling, sweet red wine. And I was like, that's true. That is what I drink for Easter and Christmas and this, this sweet wine, this new wine. Okay, Amos chapter 9 verse 13 seems to allude to wine in the new age, the age to come, the messianic age. And even Jesus himself seems to allude to this. Um, at Mark chapter two, verse 22, we get that kind of weird saying where Jesus talks about how you can't pour new wine into old wineskins because it will make the wineskins burst. And you're like, what the heck is he talking about? Well, um, if you know anything about brewing, winemaking, whatever, 
even if you make, uh, you know, kombucha or something, um, uh, when, when, you know, the yeast breaks down uh, the organisms in the drink, it causes expansion. So, you know, if you, if you homebrew beer, um, you can't just put a, a, a lid on it. It'll explode. <laughs> you have to actually be really aware of like when you get to the point of actually bottling beer um, that, uh, that it doesn't actually accidentally explode um, from kind of the, the carbonation and the expansion that's caused by um, the, the, the sugars being turned into alcohol. And so, um, you know, in the first century, when you put new wine into new wine skins, they were uh, elastic and uh, they could stretch to accommodate uh, the brewing process. You would never want to put new wine into old wineskins, though, because those old wineskins are already, you know, stretched out. They've already seen their life. They've seen their day. And so what Jesus is saying is that he needs something new because he's going to pour out new wine on the world. And this new wine is going to bring about this sober intoxication. One last illusion that's really fascinating. How did Jesus start his public ministry? How did Jesus start his public ministry? By choosing to turn water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. And what does the steward say to him? Uh, uh, or say, say to the bridegroom, um, why have you uh, saved this good wine for last? Why have you saved? And there's something kind of prophetic in that because the truly good wine, the truly, truly good wine that Jesus has, he indeed saves it for last. And when does he share it with uh, his friends? When does he sh share it with um, his uh, followers? In the last days on Pentecost, when he pours it out upon us and it, and it causes this great joy. It causes this great joy, but it also causes spontaneity. Spontaneity, what do I mean by that? When you read the catechism and its discussion of the idea of the Holy Spirit as, um, as the new law, the new law, it, it talks about how this new law brings about a spontaneity so that right and wrong are something perceived in the heart, something perceived in the heart. This is fascinating when we, again, look at uh, Old Testament prophecies and allusions to this idea. So uh, Ezekiel 3626 says, a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. 
So with that in mind, according to Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, when the new age comes, when the Messianic age is instituted, God is going to pour out his spirit upon us. And it's by the outpouring of the spirit that he's going to cause us to be obedient and careful to observe his ordinances. And that law is going to be written in the flesh, in the flesh of the heart. And so there's a way in which Christians who are docile to the Holy Spirit do not need an exterior prompting to know what it means to walk in the ways of the Lord. They can have a spontaneity about life. And we see this in a beautiful way in the saints, in a beautiful way in the saints, because though the moral life uh, does indeed put up boundaries, those boundaries actually make us more free. Imagine uh, driving on your commute on a day when there are no traffic laws, like the local government just decided we're going to have a free day. We're going to turn off all the traffic signals. None of the stop signs count. None of the speed limit signs count. Um, we just want all of you to have you know, a day off. It's really hard keeping the laws uh, it gets old after a while sitting at red lights, right? Just just have a free day. Um, I think car insurance premiums would skyrocket, right? If the government ever said, we're just going to turn off the traffic signals. Would you be more free to drive to work that day or less free? You would actually be less free because there are in fact some boundaries that actually contribute to our freedom. Um, you know, in California, where I grew up, everyone has a, a fence around their backyard. Here in Iowa, not necessarily. And, and I kind of like that. Um, everybody's a little more okay, like letting other people see their space and stuff. But if you move into a home, that doesn't have a fence around the backyard and you have a two-year-old or a three-year-old or even let, let's say like a six, seven, eight-year-old, how comfortable are you going to be letting them play in the backyard by themselves? Probably not very. And so there's a way in which um, having that fence that, that marks a boundary for where it is safe to play grants freedom to your child. You know, we can, we can talk, I, I can think of a, a million examples. You talk about with a dog. When are you able to take the dog off the leash? When you bring him inside because there's built-in boundaries inside. But as soon as you take the dog outside, the dog's got to go on a leash because there aren't those boundaries. And so the leash creates kind of a boundary. See, the moral life gives us boundaries that allow for spontaneity and freedom. And when you examine the lives of the saints, what you discover are extremely free people, the most free people in the world. And that freedom allows them to have this spontaneity and this joy to life. And it allows them to love to love with abandon, right? Without fear. Why? Because even if there's, even as, if, 
if there may still be suffering in the world, and indeed there will, even that suffering has been given a joy and a meaning because of Christ's redemption. Because our Lord began our deliverance on the cross, but it wasn't enough for him to just save us from something. It wasn't enough for Jesus to just save us from sin. He wanted to save us for something. And so he saves us for divinization so that we could have a share in divine life. So that what Jesus has by nature, we have by grace, divine sonship, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that brings us joy, sober intoxication of the Holy Spirit, and beautiful spontaneity. For freedom, you were set free. Do not forget it, friends. For freedom, you were set free. Thanks so much for listening. 